got a question for you as we get started this morning. All right, now expect honesty. Maybe not show of hands, but at least honesty with yourself, okay? Have you ever had a time in your life where you were certain, like 100% certain, 100% convinced that you were right about something? Only to find out just a little while later that you were not right. Yeah, of course, right? We're, we're humans, you know. I am a, uh, I'm a husband and I am a father. And so there are a lot of examples that scream into my, my brain when I think about times where I was 100% certain that I was right about something. And then had to like slowly kind of come to and realize, oh man, I was not right. Maybe it's directions, right? Maybe it was, I shared this in, in the first service, maybe it's, hey, did you make sure that you moved the clothes over from the washer to the dryer? You're like, yes, dear, of course I did. You've only said it a million times, right? And then later as you're out and about going through the day, it starts to click in your mind. You're like, oh, man, I thought a lot about moving the clothes over. I even emptied the dryer. I, I opened the lid but I think there are soggy, wet, stinky clothes still sitting in that washing machine, and my wife will find them when we get home. Have you ever thought that way, guys? And then you start thinking, maybe we need to go buy Starbucks or something on the way home. Maybe I need to, like, you know, like kind of butter up before we get home so maybe it's not so bad. Or maybe it's, this is the one that's more accurate to our marriage, maybe it's, Alan, I know you said this. I know for a fact that you said this, and I'm like, oh, I didn't say that. I think that's how I sound. When she knows I said something that I'm aware, unaware of, I'm sure I sound like, oh, I didn't say that at all. I didn't say that. And then later I find out, oh, man, I did say that. We can all think of examples like that, right? Where you were 100% certain. We think of it a lot in our relationships, a lot of it in marriage. But we think of times where we are 100% certain that we are right. And then we wind up being wrong. And there's a lot of grace for that. We're people. We're not perfect. That's going to happen. Students, a lot of times, can think about that in school. We can think about it in testing or things like that. You can think about times where you were 100% certain that you were right and you wound up being wrong. Maybe it's in athletics and, you know, you knew. You were, like, on the field. You're like, I saw this and I responded this way. And then when you watch film, you're like, oh, I was, I was dumb and I didn't do the right thing. Like, that's really common. But more often than not, 99 times out of 100, we can be certain that we're right and not be, but without a lot of serious repercussions, right? Maybe you disagree for a moment, or maybe you, yeah, you didn't do the right thing on a play, and, you know, the team got some more yards. Maybe you got a question wrong on a test. Maybe you forgot to go to the grocery store. Whatever it could have been, it's not usually major consequences. But for a lot of us, we can also think, if you've lived and experienced enough life, you can think of times where you have been really certain that you were doing the right thing, you're really certain. You're making decisions, you're making, based on your certainty that you had things right. And then you wind up finding out you were wrong and there are consequences, right? Maybe consequences at, hey Dan, maybe consequences at work. I shouldn't have done that, sorry Dan. Maybe consequences at work or consequences, real consequences in, in your marriage or relationships or, or maybe maybe it's a consequence of someone's safety or someone's life see there's also times I can think of in my life and hopefully the list doesn't grow much more throughout the rest of my life but I can think of times where I've been 100% certain 
that I was making the right decision only to find out later I wasn't, I can think of a few times where there have been big consequences. Can you? Maybe it's just a few. But we go through life, we make enough decisions, we get enough of them wrong, eventually it does bite us sometimes. Now, there's a movie that I saw recently based on a TikTok recommendation, so do with that what you will before we get started. I want to put a disclaimer out that this is not by any means a recommendation for this movie. This is not a student pastor seal of approval on this movie. You need you look it up, you see for yourself. But I'm just saying, I saw this movie recently that really makes me think about this situation. Someone who is really certain that they were making the right decision, that they were doing what needed to be done only to find out that, that they weren't correct. And it's a movie called Prisoners. It's 10 years old, came out in 2013, and it is with Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, all right? I kind of grim when I say that because I thought there might be booze from some of our Swifties out there. But it's got Jake Gyllenhaal in it. Anywho. All right, just humor me for a minute as I kind of give you the plot in this, okay? It's considered a psychological thriller, um, which if you know me at all, then you're like, Alan, I didn't know you ever watched psychological thrillers, and I don't know why TikTok recommended this to me, or I even watched it because I'm a scaredy cat. I don't get it. I don't understand. I was talking to someone this morning about, you know, why would you purposefully sit through a movie that would make you sad? I can kind of get that a little bit because sometimes I like to feel sad, but I have no clue why people go spend their hard-earned money and take hours out of their day to just be anxious for hours. Like, why do people go see horror movies? Why do you want to just, oh, I can't, I can't deal with it. I jump. I'm too loud. You know, people get mad at me in theaters because I make too much noise when I get scared. Like, it's not usually my thing. But for some reason, I watched this, and, and, and there's part of it that really spoke to me. So in the movie, Hugh Jackman plays a father of two children, an older son and a younger daughter. They're going down the street to visit their neighbor and their family on Thanksgiving Day. Their neighbor has similar aged children, has a young daughter around the same age. So they're having um, dinner together. It's all going great. And the girls decide Hugh Jackman's daughter wants to go back to her house and get one of her toys to come and show her friend. And for whatever reason, the parents wind up saying, you know, it's just down the street. That's fine. Just go there. Come straight back. Don't stop. Don't talk to anybody. That sort of thing. Same way that a lot of us would do in our neighborhoods. Well, being that it's a thriller, you can probably jump ahead and see kind of where we're going, that the girls did not end up making it back. So enough time goes along that the family starts to realize it's been too long. Why aren't they back? Why haven't we heard from them? They start to search. They start to look. And then what winds up unfolding on screen is a parent's worst nightmare, right? I'm describing like literally the most anxious, tense moment for parents that I could right now. So... Ultimately, their fears are realized that the girls um, are missing, and it, they come to realize very quickly that th these girls have been abducted. So it takes a turn. Now, Jackman's character does what any father would do in this situation if your name is Hugh Jackman. He turned into Wolverine, and he went and chased him down. That was the wrong movie, sorry. In reality... He grew pretty tired about the slow speed that law enforcement and detectives were using in order to find these girls, right? What father wouldn't? You want results, you want information, you want these girls to come home, you want them to be safe, you, you want all this now. 
So he is growing really impatient with this. He doesn't like the answers that he's getting. He doesn't like how it's being handled. So understandably, he wants them going faster, and this leads him to start taking matters into his own hands, to start doing a little bit of his own detective work, and he finds this person that they've kind of pinpointed as their main suspect, and he goes and learns something about and from this suspect uh, that he uses to come to the conclusion that that he knows who took the daughters, who knows where they are, and he makes some pretty drastic decisions based on this knowledge that I won't go into. But he is convinced as a father that this that he is right about which person knows where the girls are, has done something with them. So he takes matters into his own hands and starts to do some pretty heinous and horrible things in order to try to get his children back. He is 100% convinced he is right. And in it, he begins to talk to the, the other father, the his neighbor, he begins to talk to him about how he would only do the things he's doing if he was 100% certain that this would result in his daughters coming home because their life's more important than his, all these things. And it's this really powerful thing. Well, as I've kind of set up, you realize, and it's because it's a thriller, there's twists and turns. You come to the end and realize that Hugh Jackman was wrong. He was not correct about what had happened to his daughters, where they were. And so ultimately he finds himself... Um, He's dug a pretty deep hole for himself. If you've seen the movie, you get that joke. Um, And it's in a bad spot. Things do not go well for Hugh Jackman um, in the end of this. I won't spoil any more. That's for you to decide if you're going to watch it. But I just kept thinking so much as I was watching this. It was like describing my, like, primary anxiety in life is that I would be convinced that I'm right about something that's really, really, really important. And that I would make decisions based on this certainty and then I would find out that I'm wrong and have to suffer really, really deep consequences from it. That sort of thing drives me nuts. That kind of, you know, like that kind of questioning about, God, I just, I could have swore that I was right and I wound up being wrong. That's a really anxious feeling. And I won't bury the lead here this morning. Here is our connection. There are many people going through life absolutely certain that they are headed the right direction, that they are making the right decisions on their life, their lifestyle, their beliefs. And the problem is, for many, they're wrong. And those people who are wrong in their certainties, it is unlikely that they realize they're wrong until it's far too late, until the consequences are dire, are serious, are bad. There's certain things in life that we need to be certain of. Obviously, we're here this morning in church. We're here today to worship God. And we can, you know, you can see where we're going with this, that this, this relationship with God, this is more than any movie could articulate or, or, or any sort of situation. This is the most important thing in your life that you get right. Like, and, and I mean it. You can be a great employee, but if you don't know Jesus, it was wasted. You can be a good father, but if you don't know Jesus, it was wasted. Like the list goes on and on. You can be the best person, be the most well-liked. You can even have everyone convinced that you do follow Jesus. And at the end of your life, they could celebrate and talk about how you are enjoying worshiping with God in heaven forever. But if the relationship was not actually there, wasted. 
that is a sobering thing. It is tough to talk about, and that is the, that is the framework with which we're going to open God's Word this morning. Sound good? Sound like you've been beat up a little bit already? Sorry. Whoops. We'll go ahead and get started, okay? We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. If you've been a part of our adults Bible study on Wednesday nights and you have already spent some time um, working through um, John's letters, his first, second, and third letter, and, and in this one, 1 John chapter 2, it is one of the most powerful texts in the New Testament. And when I say 1 John 2, you might not have things that just jump to your mind and like, oh yeah, 1 John 2, 17, I know that one. Like that might not jump to your mind like John three sixteen or Colossians three twenty three or Psalm 23 or things like that. But a lot of the things that we see here in 1 John, particularly this chapter, shape a lot of our doctrine within the church and are kind of pillars for what the church has been built on. So in this, John is encouraging the church that they need to hold true to teachings that they have already received to the core of their faith. He is telling them, you must be a people who hold fast, who hold strong to the core of our faith, to the core of our teaching. He's telling them essentially, you need to hold fast to nothing else as much as the gospel of Jesus Christ. The finished work of Jesus on the, on the cross that we see through the leading of his Holy Spirit and through him manifested in flesh in his life and now at work through the word of God in our lives. You need to know this. You need to believe this. This needs to be the core that you stand on. You need to be convinced of this. And he urges them not to be swayed by any teachings that are contrary to what they know, especially ideas that might be coming to them from outside of the church. In verses 12 through 14, John writes this. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It's pretty awesome encouragement from John, and it's a pretty you know, plain way to say, he's like, hey, if you're wondering why I'm writing to you, I'll just say it. I'm writing you for this. He wants to encourage, what you see here is the entire body. Generations from the beginning to end of life and in between, he wants to encourage them to remain strong and not to remain strong in themselves, but to remain strong in their salvation in the thing that has saved them. So he speaks to children. I love this. And he says, Children, I'm writing this to you because you are forgiven and you need to know that. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know God who was the creator and there in the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you already have the victory. You Church, you need to know this. That's what he's saying. He's trying to make sure that the foundation is right, that you need to know this is it. It has been completed in you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you need to know that you have overcome the evil one that God is your father, that your sins are forgiven. He is telling them like justification has happened in your life if you have believed these, this core teaching, the gospel of Jesus. That's the foundation. That's where we jump from. He's imploring the generations of the church to hold fast to what they know. Now this isn't a new thought that you would kind of just take a moment and you would launch in and say like, Church, let's get this straight. Let's get back to the basics. So let's make sure we know this. This isn't a new thought because it's not a new problem. This time in which John was writing the letter was not the first time that the church struggled with believing things about God that were not true. 
and needing to go back to the basics. In fact, if you look through all the Old Testament, you basically just see a you know, continuous like bad movie of Israel believing correct things about God and then running from Him for forever and believing lies and then having to go to rock bottom before they're brought back and start over this just cyclical process of believing and being faithful and then rejecting Him and having to go through slavery and turmoil and, and death and all these horrible things in order to be brought back and restored. It's like an endless cycle. So this happened a long time before John came and it's continued to happen for the last few thousand years since. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. The writer of Proverbs is saying here, like, you want, you want to have your path straight? You want to have your direction clear? And then this path being straight is like, do you want eternal life? Do you want relationship? With God, do you want to know that your life has the clear direction? It is. It is this that you lean not on your own understanding, your own self, your own capabilities, but you lean one hundred percent on Him. And how do we know Him? His Word, right? His Word, when it became flesh through His Son Jesus Christ, and His Word now manifested in this physical Word that we get to have now, and the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. If we are believers, like leaning on Him. I would, though, if I was writing the Allen Standard Version, add this. Do not lean on your own understanding or the understanding of others. Whether it's from outside of the church or even within the church, the temptation can be there for us to depend on our own understanding or even the way that we want things to be or to depend on what we have been told by others. Because often that's easier than having faith in what God says about himself in his words, even when there might be things that we don't understand. A lot of times it's easier when, it, when there's hard things in Scripture. You know, maybe as we start to read, you're like, I don't really like what this is saying. I don't really like that this is telling me I shouldn't do this. Or I don't like that this is telling me to do this. Or I don't really like the picture this is painting a God. That's not the God that I grew up hearing about. Or that's not the God I have in my mind. When we start to read hard things in Scripture, sometimes we start searching for someone who will make it more palpable, right? Someone who will kind of take the edge off of it and tell you like, well, here's what it really means and give it to you in a way you can digest. Make it easier to swallow. It's a newsflash for, for all of us like, God is not something that we consume and he is not something that we need in order to be like easy for us to adjust to. You want to know how scripture talks about adjusting to life following God? It's death daily. It's not like yucky medicine that we have to take in an easy way to make it go down better. Following God like does rub against our sin nature and it is difficult and the truth of his holiness does hurt sometimes to stand in front of we don't need to try to skip out on that so sometimes we look at hard things in scripture and say well so and so said that this thing in scripture means this so I'm just going to believe that without question because that's easier for me to swallow and I'll say this as someone who is tasked with communicating the truth of God's word to God's people don't ever take the words out of my mouth as gospel just because I said them 
into a microphone from stage. I want to get it right, 100%. The last thing that I would want, Eric can attest to this, anyone who's taught Sunday school or Bible studies or has been a part of you know, sharing the gospel even in any sort of way, there is no worse feeling in ministry than realizing, I think I might have just communicated that in a way that is not biblical. Or I think I might have just added more confusion than clarity when it comes to this truth from God's word. I think if the people who walk out of here are not careful and they just take what I said as truth, I might have just led them farther from Jesus than toward him. That is a horrible thought. But it is one that because I'm not perfect, Eric's not perfect, all of us are not perfect, it's a reality at times. So you don't need to even take my understanding of Scripture and say, well, I can run with that because we pay him to study the Bible or we pay him to preach or we pay him to do whatever. So I can trust him. The only infallible truths of God that we have are the ones he's given to us in his word. So I don't lean on my understanding. You shouldn't lean on my understanding. You should not lean on your own. You should lean 100% on God's word that he has given to us from front to end of this book, all conveying the gospel from beginning to end that Jesus Christ was the perfect son of God, died in your place to forgive you of your sin, that you might have eternal life with him by just believing in him and his grace. That's it. That is it. With all that being said, let's jump into what is just going to be our key text this morning. Just a few verses from 1 John chapter 2 as we continue on. And this will kind of offer us up um, kind of what we're, the whole point of what we're saying this morning. Starting in verse 21. He says this again, I write to you. I just think that's funny that he's saying this. This is why I'm writing. He says that over and over. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you about in him. So continuing on from his previous teaching, John tells believers that he is not writing um, to necessarily try to correct some wrong teaching Uh, But more so, more than anything, he is writing to let them know that their knowledge is already sufficient. Meaning, specifically, you don't have to have more knowledge in order to understand a gospel so simple that Jesus even said the best version of faith is the one that a child has. You do not have to be a genius You do not have to be well-read. You do not have to be intelligent. There is no amount of knowledge that will unlock new levels of saved from God. It is, do you believe that He is the Son of God and died in your place, or do you not? 
That's it. He's talking about knowledge necessary to salvation. When I was in college, I studied secondary education, which is education for all those um, over fifth grade and, and up until your senior year of high school. I picked secondary education because primary education seemed like the worst. All right? I did not want to be with children. I did not want to be... My gosh, as hard as... Now, I'm about to just launch into bad stuff. <laughs> I shouldn't. Kids, I love them, and we are blessed with an amazing children's pastor here um, with Ashton. I love them. I just like them to, like, ripen a little bit more before, like, I start having to minister to them. Vacation Bible School kicks my tail and leaves, like, gives me more gray hair every year. I can't imagine a full year of that. So when I get to my observations and student teaching um, during college... Um, I was expecting, you know, maybe I'll go down the road to the nice middle school that I've been at before. Maybe I'll go to that high school where they had me observed before. Nope. They sent me straight to, I won't say the name of the school even though none of y'all know where it is. They sent me straight to a, a third grade classroom that had what I would just say is behavioral problems um, with a teacher who was retiring and was that like, if this is the end of her wits, she was way over there. She's in the parking lot. She was done with these kids. And I stroll in, and I see them, and I see the way they're treating her, and I see that she's just looking at me like, buckle up. And I was <laughs> panicked. I did not want to do it. But you know what I knew as soon as I like left my first day? I was like, man, God, these kids, they have defects. These kids just... This is the uh, misfit toys, you know, there's something wrong. They need new batteries, hard reset, whatever. As I got in the parking lot, though, you know what I knew? I knew, man, I'm going to wind up loving these kids. These kids are going to wind up being the best. I'm really going to miss them when the semester is over. So for two days a week, for a whole semester, I went there, and I was right. By the end of the semester, I loved those kids, and, I mean, they could bite me and kick me and do whatever, but I got to the end of it, and I was like, man, I just am going to miss that one. I just, I just loved them. One of the things that I noticed, though, and I could see it so much more clearly in kids because, like, if you ever have been, like, in a testing room with teenagers, they're, like, kind of really want to hide it. They don't really want teachers to see what they're working on because it, like, makes their anxiety too rough. But kids don't know to be anxious that much yet, so they're just sitting there doing their tests, and you're walking up and down. It was really evident in math because you could see them, you know, you can do like minor multiplication in your head as an adult, but kids like have to write it all out. And so you're watching him do it, and you're like, oh, look, he's got it. He's going like, I'll just say little Alan because it's my name. Alan's got it. He's doing, he's doing good. He's going to get the correct answer. And then maybe, maybe if it was a little bit of anxiety about the teacher being near them, or maybe they just didn't like the answer that they were about to get, something would switch in them. And you know what I would see them do? Erase it and start over, and they'd get a wrong answer. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh, like so frustrated that you had it. You had it right. You were on the right path. You were going towards the right answer. What in the world made you change your mind? But a lot of us know what that's like, right? We can remember what it was like to be in middle school, high school, or college, and you're working on a test, and maybe it is just that, you know, you're working on something, and you're like, but this is going to be this answer that, I don't like the way that looks. I don't, that can't be right. So then you all of a sudden change your work because you think, I got to get a different answer. That can't be right. 
Or maybe, if we're just being honest this morning, maybe you do a little stretch and just you happen to notice your neighbor's paper and you're like, well, they get all A's and they're headed a real different direction than me. i got to somehow get the answer they're getting. So then you're trying to change. But for whatever reason, you second-guess yourself, right? And then what happens when you get your test back? You got it wrong, didn't you? You go straight to that one question, like question 19. And you're like, okay, I just got to know, did I get that one right? And you didn't. And you're kicking yourself because if you had wrote your first answer, it would have been correct, right? That same sort of thing happens to every single one of us. And we're familiar with things like that. And that is kind of like a real-world example of what John is trying to tell us. Except we're not talking about a 7th grade math test. And the consequences at stake are not getting an answer wrong when you've got all kinds of other chances. In verse 26, John writes to the church that there are people seeking to deceive them. There are those seeking to deceive you. Because of this, believers must be confident in their answers to some really important questions. Questions like, what will you believe about Jesus? Will you second guess what God's word says because the answer makes you uncomfortable? Will you change your mind about Jesus when someone presents an answer that seems better? I think the core of what John is saying here finds itself in the answers to those questions. What will we say about Jesus? Will I trust God's word even when where it takes me makes me uncomfortable? Or will I throw out everything that I know and believe about Jesus when someone gives me something that sounds better and requires less of me? Those are things we need to wrestle with and you need to be certain of your answers. And two big points we can sum up kind of what John is saying here in this passage. The first is this. If you remove Jesus, it's not the gospel. If you remove Jesus, it's not the gospel. In verse 22, John says that the liar is the person who would deny that Jesus was actually the Christ. And this is essentially saying anyone who would deny um, that he was fully man and fully God or try to remove aspects of his deity or who he was, try to take things away from him. Maybe they're not trying to take him out of the gospel story, but they're trying to remove things about Jesus that make him Jesus, right? If we look in Scripture and we look at what it says about who Jesus is, that he was namely God and man, that he was the son of God and God, that he was the Messiah, the Christ, that he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, that he existed in the beginning, that he lived a perfect life, that his blood was sufficient to cover sin, that he died on the cross and defeated death. If you start removing any single one of those aspects, the whole thing crumbles. The whole thing crumbles if we take away a single part of Jesus that makes him Jesus. And there are people who want to do that. Those that would deny that he's the son of God or deny that he's the Messiah or deny that his death covers sin. And it sounds silly that the early church might have dealt with this problem considering at this point, we're not talking about 2,000 years removed from Jesus. We're talking about about John. We're talking about disciples and apostles writing about this. People who are either same generation or one or two generations removed. You're talking about people who they themselves or their parents or grandparents could tell them 
about the time they saw Jesus, about the time they saw him work miracles, about the time they saw him crucified, or the stories they heard about him getting up and walking along with the dead who left their tombs. Like, they can talk about these miraculous things that they witnessed or would have heard about firsthand. They're that close to this. And even they are struggling to hold fast to the fact that, hey, Jesus wasn't alive. He was real. That, like, that really happened. They, needed to, they even needed encouragement to believe it and to not believe the lies that it didn't happen. Can you imagine what we need now 2,000 years later? How much more we need to be certain and we need to be leaning on God's word that he gave to us? I, I love my grandparents and my grandparents are probably at the earliest age of my life were the people who sought to raise me and my brother in church and, and sought for us to be godly young men. And it took a long time uh, to get there, but they were, they were the first ones. But, but I can't lean on any story from my grandmother about the time she saw Jesus turn water into wine. You, you know what I mean? I don't have a person I can look to who saw him in the flesh, at least not the way we see in Scripture. But I have God's Word. I have him manifested in his word that he gave us. If I'm following Jesus, I have his Holy Spirit dwelling within my heart. And I have, so I have the testimony of God through his word, and I have the testimony of his spirit at work in my life and at work in other believers, all telling me the same thing. Hold fast, be strong, have faith, it is finished. You need to know that it is finished. Satan, for the last 2,000 years, has been trying the same trick to convince believers and non-believers that God's word, the things it says about Jesus, what it says about God himself, is wrong on any level. It's not always the obvious ways that we think of that attempts will be made to have us take things away from Jesus because today, many people might say things like this. Jesus was a really good man. Or Jesus was just a good teacher. You know, Jesus was great, but do you really believe he was God? A really growing popular one is people would say Jesus was perfect in spirit, but not in action. Jesus had a perfect soul, but he sinned just like us. That, those are things that are being taught even in church circles now. Or a huge one that we say today, and I even want to be careful in how I say this. The tolerance of Jesus is something that's talked about a lot today. Did Jesus tolerate sinners? A lot better than I do, right? He spent his time with them. Not uncomfortable with, with the way that their sin might have made them look or their lifestyle. He spent time with them. He ministered to them. He loved them. He devoted, himself to, he devoted himself to them. There was no person he would not reach. There was no person he did not love. There was no person, regardless of decisions or, or character or anything, that he did not die in order to save if they would believe in him, right? That's true. But if you think for a minute that he was nonchalant or didn't care about sin, that is a lie from Satan. That is a lie. And you have to omit so much scripture and walk through so much mud to try to formulate anything resembling a biblical argument that Jesus didn't care about sin. It's just not correct. 
If you spend any time in God's word, you see he cared deeply about sin because he cared deeply about people. It's hard. John says, we must let the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, abide in us. And he says that what it brings forth is eternal, everlasting life. How do we know what the truth is? We believe and have faith in what God's word says about himself. Not what the preacher down the, word, down the road says about God. Not what your friend in your college class says about God. Not what the TikTok preacher says about God. Not what the deconstructionist on, on Instagram says about God. But what God's word says about himself has to be paramount for us. It has to be. This isn't just for our young people. This is for all of us. It is, I think we can all attest to this, it is disappointing to see people who have been blessed by so much, who have been blessed by godly community, who have been blessed by good teaching, who have been blessed by God's word, get it so wrong. And that's regardless of generation. It's disappointing to me to see people who were once so faithful now believing things that are so wrong. So if you take anything away from Jesus, if you take anything away from God's word, it's no longer the gospel. And at the same time, if you add anything to Jesus, it's not the gospel. If you take away from Jesus, it's not the gospel. If you add to Jesus, it's not the gospel. That's our second point. In verse 27, John says something very interesting. He says, you have no need that anyone should teach you. I guess we're done here, right? I can just pack up. We can go on home. So he says right there, you have no need that anyone should teach you. Doesn't that mean we don't need me? Right? Wrong, all right? Not just for my job security, but that's just not what it means, okay? What it's saying here is that we have received an anointing from the Father. And why does it say we have that? Because our belief in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that the Word of God and the Holy Spirit at work in us testifies to. Like, that is your primary teacher. God himself, in his word, in your testimony, the Holy Spirit at work in your life, and in the life, and in the life of other believers, that is your teacher. There is no teacher that can give you salvation. It is only God himself. That is what John is saying. Due to our faith and the grace of God, we receive eternal salvation. It's not going to be on the screen, but in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's faith that leads us to eternal life. I don't need to learn more in order to be saved. If this is your first time ever being in church this morning, if you walk out of here and all you hear is that you are imperfect, you were born sinning, God is perfect and holy and set apart, that means you're separated from him. Jesus came as God in flesh, God incarnate, lived a perfect life to be the perfect substitution for your punishment. He died on a cross for your sin and the sin of your neighbor, everyone you've ever met, everyone who's ever lived and everyone who ever will be. And after three days, he arose victorious over sin so that all who believe in him forever might be saved and have eternal life with him. That's, that's it. You don't have to join a Bible study before we tell you that. You don't have to get a seminary degree before you know that. You don't have to memorize a lick of Scripture before you know the gospel. Right? That's it. There's no special knowledge. There's no new thing that you need to know. 
There's no gatekeeping to the secret of the gospel. It is free and available to every single one of us. You don't need more teachers. You need more faith. That's what John is saying. We need more faith in what we already know about Jesus. We don't need to try to find out more special new revelations. We've had 2,000 years of people trying to have new revelations about Jesus or new messiahs or the second coming of Jesus or or all these things that people have tried to bring forth. For 2,000 years, people have wanted to find something new. When John was saying 2,000 years ago, you don't need anything new. You need to believe what's been given to us already. It's sufficient. It really is, 2,000 years later, still the only thing sufficient for sin. Unless Jesus were to come through those back doors right now and say, Alan, you're wrong, here's a new revelation, and then peace out and transcend into heaven. Unless that happens, everything you need to know in order to be saved has already been made evident to you through his word. And it is the best teacher for you ever. God will teach you about himself much better than I can. We need to believe what he has already given us. It's not Jesus plus works. It's not Jesus plus earthly success. It's not Jesus plus knowledge. It's not Jesus plus seminary degrees. It's not Jesus plus preaching. It's not Jesus plus being being accepted by culture. It's not Jesus plus affirming sin. It's not Jesus plus anything because if if it's Jesus plus anything, it's nothing. To add on to Jesus is to take everything away. So why this message? Why this on Senior Sunday? I don't know if it seems this way to you, but it feels like to me we're living in a really confusing time. It seems like there are so many more sources of information today because there are. In a lot of ways, that's a good thing. Because of modern technology, that there is a wealth of information at our fingertips every single day. I grew up in a small town called Chatham, Louisiana with one light in town. And at the time, it wasn't even a stoplight. It was a caution light. So that doesn't even count. I was a no-stoplight town that I grew up in. My parents, my grandparents did not get dial-up internet. Dial-up, not even like anything else. They didn't get dial-up until 2010. So in 2010, I'm staying with them for a week trying to work on a research paper, and no one can call the phone. Like it is, it's a time machine was their house. If they wanted to know any information, you know what they did? They either called somebody or they went down the hallway to the giant bookshelf and looked on the bottom three shelves that contained the encyclopedia that they purchased sometime probably in 1973. So who knows if that stuff was even accurate. The only stuff we used that encyclopedia for was to sit on at the dinner table so the kids could see. Like, that was it. But that's how you got information. Now, I have more information available on one website in my pocket that my grandparents contained in volumes of encyclopedias in their home. That's a good thing, access to information. With this and and modern technology, it's not just the access to information, it's also a platform. With just a few taps of your fingertips or pressing the upload button with a video, you can shoot out into the world your thoughts and opinions on anything, culture, politics, Humanity, everything, faith, religion, all of this. You can shoot it out there. But with this wealth of information and with this abundance of platforms, there's also been problems that have come with it. Something I feel like we're seeing in the church today is that two things that seem opposed are happening at the same time. 
both uncertainty and at the same time, somehow arrogance are running rampant, especially within the younger population. Some are uncertain about who or what to trust because it feels like there's an overwhelming amount of voices out there that are all saying something different. And because everyone has a platform, unfortunately, a lot of people abuse them. There's recipes out there and formulas that you can look at to make yourself famous, to make yourself an influencer, even in the church. A pastor wants to be a celebrity pastor. He can spend enough money and post enough content, and he will be a celebrity pastor. It doesn't matter if his integrity is up to snuff to be a pastor with that kind of platform. If he's talented enough and charismatic enough, he can have a big platform, and then he could fail and lead people astray. And there's a lot of people who are uncertain today because they've been burned too many times. They've been fed wrong information too many times. So they're uncertain. They don't know who to trust. And on the other side of that coin, there's also people who are struggling with this intellectual arrogance because they feel like they've unlocked some special knowledge that other people around them don't have. I know more, therefore I'm better. I've read more about theology, therefore I'm a better Christian. Doesn't it seem like everyone on Facebook is an expert now? Right? And sometimes it's a little bit surprising. I didn't know how to say this in the first, first message, but I thought more about it. Sometimes it's a little surprising because you're like, from knowing you in person, I wouldn't know you're so articulate, right? Sometimes everyone just seems like they're such an expert. I'm like, where is this in the daily life? Because it's different when you can be really thoughtful with your words and really articulate and you can edit everything and, and post and try to create this image for yourself online that you've got it all together, that you're smart, that you're educated, that you're successful, that you know everything. It's something that people are doing a lot. In the church, we've seen a huge uptick, at least publicly, of problematic theological stances that have little to no biblical base at all. There's a lot of new age beliefs and theologies that have no biblical backing at all. And all anyone has to say is that that's not really what the Bible means. And people just take it. If you have someone who has some degrees on their wall, even if they're from non-accredited Mickey Mouse school, I don't know, I sound like an old man when I said that, <laughs> Mickey Mouse degrees on their wall, if they post a video saying, well, actually what God's word, if you, if you look at it in the original language, means blah, 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 then people are just believing them hand over foot and being led away from true biblical teaching. It's tough. On the other hand, you have people who are deconstructing from the faith altogether. If you don't know what deconstruction means, if you're not familiar, it means what it sounds like it means, to take something apart back down to the foundation. And I will tell you that deconstruction for many people is not only beneficial, it's also necessary. In so many ways, we need to be people who are willing to look and say, God, where am I believing things about you that aren't true? And if I'm believing anything about you that's not right, remove it from my life so I can replace it with what is true. God, where am I not loving people the way Jesus would have loved people? Where am I treating people poorly that Jesus would have ministered to? Like, where am I not living my life correctly? And if there is anywhere, remove it. Take it away from me so that I can be more like you, so I can be more like Jesus in my life. We should do that. If, I'm, if God blesses me to let me live into my 70s and 80s, then I think by the end of my life, I will certainly be able to look back and I will believe different things, hopefully for the better, about God at 88 than I do here at 28. 
I'm sure there'll be several times in my life where I look back and say, you know, in my 30s, I believe this about God's grace, but the more he has sanctified me, I've realized it's more. It's this. Or in my 30s, you know, I believe this is how Christians should view politics, but now that I look back, I'm like, man, in reality, we're just aliens in this world. And that I should continue to be shaped by his Holy Spirit and by scripture, right? That's healthy deconstruction, to tear something down, much like exercising, to tear down a muscle so it can be built back stronger. But the problem is that's not the type of deconstruction that we're seeing in the church. We're seeing deconstruction that is people walking away from the faith altogether. Why is this relevant? Because this isn't the same thing as someone just saying, you know, I came and tried church at First Lindale and it just wasn't for me, so now I don't go to church anymore. It's not the same as someone saying, you know, I tried church, but I just kind of want to do what I want, so I'm not going to be there. I think a lot of times we think that's why people leave the church. But the problem with why we're seeing people leave the church today is people are coming to the conclusion after what they would say is long periods of learning and studying, they're coming to a point where they would say, I've figured out that none of this was real. I have learned enough to say God's not real. I've educated myself out of Jesus. I've left faith in my adolescence. I've grown out of Jesus. That, if you're not picking up on it, is really problematic. It's funny to me that many of the same people that I know personally who are loud voices within kind of like the deconstruction movement that we see are some of the same ones who when we were in seminary together struggled the most with theological elitism and intellectual arrogance whenever they claimed to be Christians. When I went to seminary at New Orleans, um, and I don't, usually don't talk about seminary very much because I don't ever want to come across like the know-it-all. There's too much I don't know to act like I do know anything. But I would sit in class with guys and with men and women, and they would just talk about theology and all these things they knew with just this weight of arrogance and being, you know, I'm, I'm better because I've read more. Or they would like, if they mentioned some theologian who lived 250 years ago who I'd never heard of, and I'd be like, well, I don't know who that is. They'd be like, oh, you don't know who, you know, I don't know. I was going to make up a name. <laughs> you don't know who so-and-so is? And I'd be like, no, I don't. And they would almost talk to like, well, you, you shouldn't be here. You, you, why, you say you're a Christian and you don't know this? Huh. Just building themselves up as if because I know more, I'm better. I'm closer to God than you because I've unlocked this special knowledge. And now, it's like they've progressed so far down that path of knowledge that there are some men and women that I went to school with learning to be in, you know, properly minister to people. And it's not just that they're not in ministry anymore. Many of them don't even claim to be Christians anymore and would go even further to say that they are against the church. And their attitude is that, actually, I have learned enough and studied enough that now I can confidently say that none of this was really real to begin with. And it would be easy for me to just throw stones and continue to just be sarcastic and, and poke holes in that. But as I step back, I find myself being less critical of this and more sympathetic. Because according to John, these are simply people who have the wrong teacher. These are simply people who have been taught by the wrong teacher. 
If your faith is built on recycling the opinions of other people instead of dependence on God's word above all else, then you will be swayed by every new blog post, every TikTok, and every hot take. Should we study? Yes. Should we learn? Yes. Should we work out our theology? Absolutely. But the Holy Spirit is the only thing that will strengthen and deepen my faith in Christ. Not my knowledge, not any of my intellectual accomplishments. I cannot learn enough about God to make me more saved. All I need to know is the simple gospel. The last thing I guess I'd leave us with is in a time where information has never been more accessible, certainty has never been more valuable. If you want to be confused, there's confusing stuff out there. If you want to hear compelling arguments against God, they're out there. You can find them. But just because there's more of them now or we have access to more of them now doesn't mean any of them are new. It's the same argument, just hashed over and over and over again. We're hearing things now. We're just hearing it more at one time. They're the same things the early church was hearing when John was writing. People have been trying to discredit what Jesus did on the cross since the moment he got off of it. It's never been more important for the church to be certain. To be certain in what we believe. For young people to be certain for what they believe. This is an uncertain time for young people. There are many people within and outside the church believing wrong things about God, yet being convinced that they are right. And now more than ever, we need to stand firm on what we know to be true, just as John encouraged the early church. We lost another um, giant of the faith this week. If you're aware, does anyone know who Timothy Keller is. Timothy Keller was a um, pretty famous pastor. He was the head of the Gospel Coalition um, for many years, and he was a pastor of Redeemer Church in New York City, and he was one of my favorite pastors to listen to, um, to read his books, and he has just taught me so much um, about how to study and not let it go to my head, um, how to care about learning, how to reach lost people, how to reach people who have no care about Jesus at all. He was an amazing man who recently lost his fight to pancreatic cancer. Um, and it's just, it's, it's honestly been tougher for, for me than I thought it would be because I just, it's hard for me realizing like the, he'll never write another thing that I get to learn from. And, and I know we just talked about not needing teachers in order to know Jesus, but he does help. He does help me know Jesus. So that's tough. But there's been a lot of people sharing quotes about Timothy Keller and from his life and sharing things about him and things that he said this week. And I found this. The central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts are set on God, but how unshakably his heart is set on us. So at the end of all this, all that we've talked about, about holding firm to the gospel, holding firm to the teaching that is sufficient for us and you know, not being swayed or not being convinced to take things away from Jesus or to add on to Jesus, but to believe that God really died in my place, that I can really know and be certain of my faith and I don't have to be swayed by all these new information and new sources and all, the, all this overload and of, of anxiety that comes at me from every angle and that I can enter into new stages of life with confidence. I can enter into the workforce and not be swayed in my faith. I can enter into college and not be swayed in my faith and I can be strong and be proud of my faith and, and not think less of myself because I still believe and preach Jesus crucified. I don't have to think I'm some backwoods southern, southerner who needs to grow out of Jesus. Like You don't have to think that about yourself. But as much as I want to be certain, I need to know that he's certain about me. And as much as I want to be set in my heart on God. His heart is set much more on me. 
So as we hold fast to Jesus, we need to know that he's actually the one holding on to us. My faith and certainty and assurance in his completed work on the cross cannot hold a candle to how much his heart has set on those who believe in him. That's, that's the reminder for us this morning. That's the teaching for us this morning. To hold fast to what he has done.